Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 58. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is February 9th, 2018, and our guests for this week include Dr. Libby O'Connell, talking to us about the Food Administration's rationing directives a hundred years ago this month. Dr. Edward Lengel with a story about an interesting military demonstration by the Doughboys at New York's Hippodrome. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog with the AEF's first military engagements of 1918. Indy Nidell and Florian Wittig from the Great War Channel on YouTube talking to us about producing this long-running video series. Ambassador Carol Mosley Braun telling us about her family's connection to World War I. Dr. Richard Slotkin, who examines the shifting ethnic and cultural landscape in America during World War I. Amy Miller introducing the Ohio World War I centennial effort and their new website. Catherine Akey with some selections from the centennial of World War I in social media. All this and more this week on World War I Centennial News, a weekly podcast brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Food will win the war. That was the rallying cry for Herbert Hoover, a mining engineer by training, an entrepreneur by character, and a public servant by circumstance. Herbert Hoover was in Europe in 1914 when it all hit the fan. He stepped up and helped organize the return of around 120,000 Americans who got stranded. He led 500 volunteers in distributing food, clothing, steamship tickets, and cash to get the Americans home. Hoover, who would become the 31st president of the United States, remarked, quote, I did not realize it at the moment, but on August 3rd, 1914, my career was over forever. I was on the slippery road of public life. And so it's no surprise that President Woodrow Wilson tapped the young Hoover to run his wartime food administration. And what a challenge food production and management had become. The men who farmed put on uniforms. Armies of them needed to be fed. Shiploads of food needed to be transported. And in Europe, after three and a half years of devastation and fighting, the populations were starving. With that as an overview, let's jump into our Wayback Machine and go back 100 years to the war that changed the world. It's late January 1918. President Wilson issues a proclamation in the official bulletin, the government's War Gazette, published by George Creel's Committee on Public Information. Dateline, January 28, 1918. Headline. President's proclamation calls upon people of nation to reduce consumption of wheat and meat products in order to feed America's associates in the war. And Wilson's proclamation opens with, 
Many causes have contributed to create the necessity for a more intensive effort on the part of our people to save food in order that we may supply our associates in the war with the sustenance vitally necessary to them in these days of privation and stress. The reduced productivity of Europe because of the large diversion of manpower to the war, the partial failure of harvests, and the elimination of the more distant markets for foodstuffs through the destruction of shipping places, this burden of their subsistence very largely rests upon our shoulders. The Food Administration has formulated suggestions which, if followed, will enable us to meet this great responsibility without any real inconvenience on our part. The proclamation goes on to explain the details, and Wilson concludes with, I, therefore, in the national interest, take the liberty of calling upon every loyal American to take fully to heart the suggestions which are being circulated by the Food Administration, and of begging that they be followed. I am confident that the great body of our women, who have labored so loyally in cooperation with the Food Administration for the success of food conservation, will strengthen their efforts and will take it on as a part of their burden in this period of national service to see that the above suggestions are observed throughout the land. President Woodrow Wilson With us again today is food historian, author, and World War I Centennial Commissioner, Dr. Libby O'Connell. Thank you, Teo. Nice to be back to talk about food and World War I, because I really believe food is such an important lens for understanding history in a, in a new way. So Libby, the cry was, food will win the war. And this particular program came to be known as Meatless Monday, Wheatless Wednesday. Can you give us some perspective? Was it effective? Well, it was effective in two ways. The amazing thing about this campaign is that it's the first national campaign that unites all citizens without actual rationing. It is totally voluntary. That's very important for everyone to know. This is not the rationing of World War II. This is a voluntary program. And Hoover, working with the mastermind of propaganda, George Creel, end up creating a very effective campaign. The campaign will produce 15% reduction in domestic food consumption, leaving 18 million tons of food available to be shipped to the Allies between 1918 and 1919. A very short window of time. So it's a very effective integrated campaign, integrated nationally and with the state's cooperation as well. There posters were these wonderful means of communication that the Bureau of Public Information, George Creel's group, created with Herbert Hoover and got the word out to libraries, train stations, in supermarkets, everywhere. And um, popular periodicals and newspapers as well would have the same message in different colorful ways of expressing it, talking about conserving food consumption increasing food production and the increasing home conservation, by which they mean home canning, really. And they offered different ways you could do this. And one of them is the idea of not eating as much meat. By meat, here during World War I, they meant beef and pork, because that could be exported. They encouraged people to eat poultry, all types of poultry, 
um, and fish as well. So it's not like they, no one's eating animal products, but they're supposed to reduce the amount of um, beef and pork that they eat. And also the idea of reducing the consumption of wheat. Wheat is very important for the making of bread as well as other things, but there are lots of substitutes that you can use to make bread, including corn flour, which we have a lot of, we have masses of corn here. The Food Administration recommended people to cut the use of wheat in half so that you would, when you made bread or you were having cereal, it would be only half wheat and then half other grains. The reason why wheat is so important is it is exported to Europe and baked into bread. The feeling is, is that if you have the civilians in Europe with an adequate supply of bread to be able to feed their families, you will reduce social unrest and you will increase the food available for the soldiers there. And thirdly, they just they consulted this new expert, these home economics, these home economic scientists who said, don't worry, American civilians will still be well fed if they follow our advice by eating more vegetables, more fruit, and more chicken instead of beef and pork. It has two prongs in its approach to propaganda and policy. And one is to achieve the goals about reducing food consumption and increasing food exports. But secondly, engage people on a voluntary basis, because if people feel that they are making a difference, their hearts get more engaged in the war effort. So they aren't just sitting at home saying, oh, you know, God bless America, I hope our troops win. They are actually feeling empowered to serve their country by volunteering in this whole food campaign. It's an interesting and very, very effective policy that was adopted. Libby, thank you for joining us again and for your wonderful insights. Well, thank you for inviting me. Dr. Libby O'Connell is former chief historian for the History Channel, author, food historian, and U.S. World War I Centennial Commissioner. Follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more about Dr. O'Connell and how food will win the war. 100 years ago this week in the War in the Sky, there are two events worth noting. First, the Lafayette Escadrille, the famed squadron of American flyers who flew for the French before America entered the war, are officially transferred from the French Army to the U.S. Army and redesignated the 103rd Aero Squadron. Also, the U.S. replaces the insignia on all U.S. planes with what is called the roundel, an outer red ring, then a blue, and then a white center. The Allies had requested the change out of a fear that the white star in the center of the old design might be mistaken for a German cross in the fog of battle. The roundel remains in use until the U.S. reverts to its former markings in August of 1919. Fine-tuning the Army Air Service 100 years ago this week for the War in the Sky. You can follow the War in the Sky with our comprehensive nearly day-by-day timeline curated by author R.G. Head. You'll find it at www.cc.org slash war in the sky. One word, all lowercase. Or follow the link in the podcast notes. This week for America Emerges... Military Stories from World War I, Dr. Edward Lengel is going to tell us about a very interesting military demonstration by U.S. forces at New York's Hippodrome. Let me set this up. 
large numbers of troops are wrapping up their stateside training and preparing to ship out. The pace is accelerating, and multiple divisions are shipping out simultaneously, most of them from the greater New York City area. Logistics for juggling railways, encampments, embarkations, and debarkations, facilities, ships, food, fuel, and weapons is ever more challenging. But the doughboys are pumped and grip with the excitement as they prepare to take it to the Kaiser. Their adventure is about to begin. This is where Ed picks up the story in New York. So the Hippodrome is an incredible building. It's like a fairy tale castle on Manhattan. It was on 6th Avenue between 43rd and 44th Streets. It doesn't exist anymore, but at the time, it was opened in 1905. It was considered the world's largest theater. It had a stage alone that could accommodate a thousand people, including elephants and other kinds of animals, and an audience of up to 5,000 spectators. 100 years ago, this week, on February 3rd, 1918, a regiment of doughboys appears on the stage. They pull in at Penn Station that morning. These are guys from the 77th Metropolitan Division, draftees from New York City, of the 308th Regiment, and they march off to the Hippodrome. Now, the 308th Regiment would later become known as the source of the famous Lost Battalion that was surrounded in the Argonne Forest for several days in October, attacked by the Germans on all sides. These men would in future become heroes, but now they were just green troops and appear on stage in front of a huge crowd. And a particular company, Company E, that's led by an Irish-American stockbroker named Captain George McMurtry, takes the lead in a number of acts that begin with marching back and forth all over the stage and what's really reminiscent of a Busby Berkeley type musical performance. They even, uh, the troops gather around a campfire and sing wistful songs of home and love of country. They end up with the Star Spangled Banner. But then the stage drops the prop men do their magic and it lifts again and the troops of the regiment engage in this depiction of trench warfare or what they imagine trench warfare is going to be. They are subject to a gas attack. Of course, it's not real gas. And they snipe against Germans who are sneaking toward their trenches and pick them off. And they even engage in an assault on the German trench. And one of the doughboys is hiding in a tree stump and in a Charlie Chaplin style moment goes rushing across the stage and knocking over Germans. Well, to the audience, this is not comedy. To the audience, this is real. And this is what they think trench warfare is really going to be like. And so the, the performance ends, it's lauded in the newspapers as being the very stuff of modern warfare. And it's regarded as, as being a pure depiction of what trench warfare is going to be like. Now, the terrible irony is that all the men who choreographed and led this performance would either be killed or wounded in the Argonne Forest on the Western Front. A prime choreographer was killed. George McMurtry was severely injured. And when the troops leave the Hippodrome and they go marching down Park Avenue to 34th Street 
they're led by a marching band whose bandmaster Herman Schoenfeld would later perform funeral music for the killed doughboys as they're carried out of the Argonne Forest. So it's a, a very moving and chilling premonition of what the war is going to be like in a performance by future heroes, future doughboy heroes at New York's Hippodrome. Next week, Dr. Edward Lengel will tell us about the 32nd Red Arrow Division, made from the Michigan and the Wisconsin National Guard. Some of the division's first contingent drowns in the sinking of the Tuscania on February 5th, but most of the Red Arrow Doughboys travel on the massive ship, the USS Leviathan, which used to be a German ship, Die Vaterland, the Fatherland. But as we declare war, we confiscate her in New York Harbor and turn her into a massive troop ship to send the Doughboys to fight its original namesake. It's kind of ironic. Dr. Edward Lengel is an American military historian, author, and our segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. There are links in the podcast notes to Ed's post and his website as an author. Now on to the Great War Project with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, your post this week is titled, The Americans Are In It. And by that, you mean in the trenches and in the fight. I don't think your story this week needs any more introduction than that. No, I don't think so either. But the headlines read, the Americans are in it and the clocks are ticking. Melt down the church bells, special to the Great War Project. American soldiers are now in the war. For the first time, 10 months after the United States declared war on Imperial Germany, United States troops are taking offensive action on the Western Front, reports historian Martin Gilbert. On February 13th, reports Gilbert in the zone of Champagne, American artillery batteries took part in a French attack that broke through the German lines and captured more than 150 German prisoners. Ten days later, according to Gilbert at Chevrigny, two American officers and 24 of their men volunteered to take part with French troops in a raid on German trenches. The raid lasted half an hour and 25 Germans were taken prisoner. According to one newspaper account, although the actual occasion was not of much importance, February 23rd is one of the dates that will always be remembered in the history of the war. But it is true that the United States is in the war now in a real way with Americans getting killed and inflicting death as well. Later in February a century ago, an American officer is watching another French raid on the German trenches in northern France. According to Gilbert, carried away with the enthusiasm of the moment he joined in the raid, helped to capture several German soldiers and was awarded the Croix de Guerre. It was the first such award to a member of the American Expeditionary Force. The officer's name, Colonel Douglas MacArthur. At the same time, Winston Churchill is back in a significant role in the war. Churchill is now Minister of Munitions in the British government. At this moment in the war a century ago, Churchill is touring the sorrowful battlefields of the previous three years. Churchill writes to his wife, nearly 800,000 of our British race have shed their blood or lost their lives here during three and a half years of unceasing conflict. Many of our friends and my contemporaries all perished here. Death seems as commonplace and as little alarming as the undertaker Churchill writes, quite a natural, ordinary event. 
which may happen to anyone at any moment, as it happened to all these scores of thousands who lie together in this vast cemetery, ennobled and rendered forever glorious by their brave memory. Still, Churchill, among many other British leaders, surveys the balance of forces at this moment in the war a century ago and concludes the balance of forces on the Western Front favors the Germans. They, the Germans, can hear two clocks ticking, observes historian Adam Hochschild. They knew that the great battle to decide the war had to be won before summer. Otherwise, hundreds of thousands and soon millions of American troops would join the fight. And in Germany itself, there were signs that the country might not be able to hold out long. Civilians were suffering more painfully than ever. With imports kept out of the British naval blockade, metal was so scarce that everything possible, kettles and cookpots, doorknobs, even more than 10,000 church bells were being confiscated and melted down for munitions. And that's the news for this week from The Great War Project. Mike Schuster from The Great War Project blog. Every week, we tell you about these wonderful videos on YouTube from The Great War Channel. The channel has some pretty impressive statistics. It launched in May of 2014, has published over 515 episodes, has over 800,000 subscribers on YouTube, and has earned over 120 million video views. Earlier this week, I called Indy Nidell, the show's host, and Florian Wittig, the series producer, at their studio in Berlin to learn a little more about their experience in producing The Great War Channel. Indy Flo, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Great to be here. Hi to you. Thanks for having us. So, gentlemen, I wanted to bring you on the show not to talk about World War I, but to talk about telling the story of World War I. Ah, clever. So, Indy, this project came together in the spring of 2014. Can you tell us who and how it happened? I had a, an old friend of mine named Spartacus Olsen, at the time the CEO of Mediacraft Networks, which was a, a German YouTube network. It was the largest at the time. And they produced O&O channels, channels they owned and operated. So he had me come down to Cologne, where they were headquartered, to pitch a bunch of shows to him and to the rest of the, the board there. And I had five ideas for shows that I thought could take off as YouTube channels. And one of them that Sparty and I came up with together uh, was, since it was four months before the 100th anniversary of the beginning of the war, one of them was doing what we called at the time World War I Weekly, although it changed, obviously, to the Great War. And um, even already then, in March of 2014, we'd sketched out roughly how an episode would look. Now, I didn't even really start writing the episodes until near the end of June. And it wasn't until mid-July that we shot the first few episodes, because of course the first one came out on um, July 28th, you know, 100 years later, that we shot the first few episodes and a couple of prelude specials. So it was very much a race against time to get it started, but that's how it came out. So Flo, how did you get involved in the project? Yeah, my first day on the show was on 14th of July. So basically like, uh, I think four days before the first filming session. And uh, I just, you know, I had a job interview a week prior and I said, yeah, can you maybe start next week already? Yeah, that would be great. And uh, then it was like, okay, we need maps. Uh, here is a script, can you check it? Uh, this is Tony, by the way. He's uh, also one of the producers. Say hi. I hope you uh, want to work together for the next four years. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it. That's how it started. So, so gentlemen, for us, this is podcast episode number fifty-eight, and you're somewhere near episode five hundred and twenty. Now that leaves me in awe, but it also leaves me with a question for you, Indy. 
World War I is such an incredibly, insanely, bizarrely surreal story. How do you think immersing yourself so deeply in this and, and for so long, how has that affected your worldview? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it, well, it really has in, in many ways. First of all, because now, obviously, after writing you know, 500 scripts and doing research for most of them, I know a lot of weird stuff about the war, like countries and movements and political actions and things that I never knew existed that you can always take something away from that. But um, just thinking of the war itself, you know, I grew up in Texas, right? And I did study history at university, but it was mostly Renaissance European, early modern European history. So, and you know, I learned about World War One in high school like everybody else did. But since we learn mostly about American participation in the war, we learn mostly about the Western Front, and you 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 grow up thinking, oh well, World War One was a war that was mainly fought in Western Europe. And of course, working it now, you know, when I'm writing whole episodes about the Mesopotamian Front or the Siege of Qingdao, the Battle of the Falklands in Germany, East Africa, you realize what a colossal, all-world-encompassing war it was, and the what, 13 or 14 fronts when 11 or 12 were active at the same time and the vast number of men from every single continent that came. I never really knew the scale of the war, nor what long-term impact it had aside from just being a war. I mean, for example, in the years, the four years from 1914 to 1918, medicine advanced more in those four years than it has in any four-year period of history before or since. You don't realize the the enormous leaps and bounds, you know, of course, for good, for better or for worse, that technology took. I mean, it's great that you develop mobile X-ray machines, but maybe not so great for us that flamethrowers and stuff were developed at the same time. Well, you know, Indy, we started changing the nomaker for it as the war that changed the world. And I think that's really appropriate. Absolutely. The Europe of 1913, let's say, say the world of 1913 and the world of 1919 were not six years apart. They were in many ways, completely unrecognizable from each other. Uh, the entire social structures were changed. Four great empires ceased to exist. I mean, before the war was an age of empire. After the war was an age of isms. Communism, republicanism, isolationism, capitalism, any ism you can think of, that was the 1920s. Uh, it's called a world war for a reason. Yeah. That's like what, what one fan actually wrote in at some point. She, I now understand why it's called a world war. Yeah, And that, I think that sums up our learning experience on the team here pretty well. Flo, you and I have been chatting every month for a few years now, and I've really enjoyed watching you guide the project to where it is today. Now, one thing that struck me is how incredibly dedicated to your audience you guys are. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, it's a, it, I, I think that's definitely one of the greatest things about working on the show is um, to get in touch with people all over the world. Uh, I mean, we have dedicated fans in the U.S., uh, in Canada, of course, but also here in Europe, we have fans writing in from Thailand, from Japan and everywhere that, you know, first they just want to, most of them just say, hey, you know, it's a cool show. And then at some point we realized, you know, from getting comments on the uh, on YouTube that some of the people actually have a wealth of knowledge in some super specific uh, things like, hey, uh, I know a lot about this t type of landing craft. Hey, I know a lot about um this kind of uh battle or this kind of uniform and everything and i think that's one of the be the best decisions we made is like we want to work together with the community and this kind of feedback is like the one thing that i think catapulted the show in terms of quality from 2014 to 2018. you know there's also a good metaphor in this for you know i mean a lot of the people are from different countries and 100 years ago 
you know, I'm German. Um, when we meet someone from Poland or uh, someone from Ukraine or something, then, you know, a hundred years ago, we, we might have sat on opposing sides of, uh, of the battlefield. And now we can work together to record this kind of and preserve this kind of history. Well, and also, um, you know, and I've said many times, and I like saying it about the show, that this, the Great War, that's the first ever global, free, real-time, interactive documentary. And I think it's important that it's interactive, and that's hence YouTube and stuff. I mean, our, I mean, somebody once wrote, like, a couple years ago in a comment on one of the episodes, this is the only channel on YouTube where the comments don't suck. And I think it's true, actually. We get, it's, I, I read through the comments all the time. I'm, I'm happy to answer comments, and Flo answers as the channel, and I answer as me. Guys, thank you so much, and uh, have, have a lovely day. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about the war. That's, yeah. you know, that's what I do. <laughs> uh, and thanks to you, and uh, keep up the great war for the Centennial Commission. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. Indy Nidell, the host, and Florian Wittig, the producer of the Great War Channel on YouTube. Follow the link in the podcast notes. It's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. This section isn't about history, but rather it explores what's happening now to commemorate the centennial of the war that changed the world. It's a privilege to be joined today by a genuine social pioneer, an amazing person of many honors, distinctions, and firsts. To start with, Carol Mosley Braun was one of the first black women to graduate from the law school at the University of Chicago. She was an assistant United States attorney, an Illinois state legislator, a U.S. state senator, an ambassador, and my favorite, she was adopted as a member of a Maori tribe. She's also an entrepreneur and on the Diplomatic Advisory Board of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. Welcome, Ambassador Carol Mosley-Braun. Thank you so much. It's my absolute privilege to be with you. Ambassador Braun, I want to ask you about your grandfather, Thomas Davy, and his cousin, both of whom served in World War I. Could you tell us about them? Well, uh, my sister actually got me started on this, this journey or this quest inadvertently. Uh, she took some pictures of, my, of our family, my ancestors, and wouldn't give them back. So I started <laughs> investigating <laughs> Thomas Davy and his service in World War I. And come to find out, he had been awarded, he was eligible for, and a medal, which he never received during his life uh, for the Meuse-Argonne uh, engagement. And that um, it was his cousin uh, that was killed abroad and whose name is on the memorial here in Chicago, in Bronzeville. So I began to learn about my grandfather. I've started studying about the 366, which was the infantry uh, unit that he was associated with or affiliated with. And so it has been a real adventure learning about World War One. I'm really excited about it. And uh, again, it was some unknown history that I did not know, both family history and history of the United States that was, that frankly, I would have been, I was completely in the dark about. Oh, most men didn't. But did Thomas Davy talk about his experience when he came home from the war? You know, he did not. I was a child when he died. And so he would not have. He may have talked about it with my mother and, and with the older generation, but uh, but he never talked with me about it. I had to go on, on, on a, a journey to find out this information at all. Uh, we just didn't have any records of it. We had one picture of him, which I now have uh, here in the house, a picture of him uh, in his uniform. 
and he looks really dapper and wonderful. But I've been basically unraveling uh, the tale of his service uh, over those years. Ambassador Braun, you've been helping us advocate for this, but why do you think that America needs a World War I memorial in the nation's capital? Well, I think it's critical that all the young people who come to the Capitol with their schools or with their family have a chance to visit the memorial and to get uh, educated about it. It's such a critical piece of our of our history, and it's been neglected and overlooked, unfortunately, and this memorial will help to change that. I'm just hopeful that we can get the word out, as you are doing here today, why this was so important to the world, not just the United States, but to the world. It changed everything. And I think history that fails to acknowledge how important this war was in the, in, in, in the scheme of things uh, is incomplete history and therefore a fraud. So I just think it's important that we are honest about our, all the whole truth of our history and that uh, we do what we can to get this memorial built and publicized so young people can know that it's there. So I have to ask you, who inspired you to become the accomplished and amazing person that you are? Well, that's really sweet of you to ask. I appreciate the question. Uh, you know, I, I took I took great uh, inspiration from my family. The women in my family were all strong women, and and uh, uh, so my mother, my aunt, etc. And they were they they led the way and made it possible for me. It, just like World War One opened the door for our country to be the superpower that it is, my ancestors opened the door for me to be able to go on and do things that they frankly could not even have imagined. My mother would not have imagined being a law school graduate or being a lawyer, um, although she aspired to that. And so I was able to do that and then move on and get to the United States Senate and then become an ambassador. So that's that's the American dream right there. And so I just think that World War One encapsulates both the good, the bad and the ugly of, of our American experience. And I think, therefore, it's really important that we tell the stories and we make sure that the next generation knows exactly about the contributions and sacrifice of these these uh, Americans. Ambassador Braun, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your family story with us. Well, I'm delighted to do so. Thank you for asking. Ambassador Carol Mosley Braun is a pioneering politician, former U.S. Senator from Illinois. She was the ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa. And she also serves on the Diplomatic Advisory Board of the World War I Centennial Commission. Read more about her at the links in the podcast notes. We're going to start this week in our Remembering Veterans section with Dr. Richard Slotkin, historian, professor emeritus of English and American Studies at Wesleyan University, and author of the book Lost Battalions, The Great War and the Crisis of American Nationality. Welcome, Dr. Slotkin. Thank you very much, Tao. Dr. Slotkin, your book looks at the changing American cultural identity as experienced by two different military units the 369th, a black regiment, and the 77th, the Melting Pot Division. Why did you choose these two units for your book? This uh, World War I period uh, is the culmination of a 40-year period in which uh, racism and ethnic prejudice in the United States were constantly accelerating. Uh, It's a period when uh, Jim Crow is being established in the South, segregation, disenfranchisement, and lynching. But also, the, the racial prejudice against blacks is being transferred to the so-called new immigrants, particularly uh, East European Jews and Italians. And uh, the uh, anti-immigration movement, uh, the, the, the sort of the slogan 
is uh, formulated by Lawrence Lowell of Harvard, uh, who said, Indians, Negroes, Chinese, Jews, and Americans cannot all be free in the same society. And that's where things stand in 1917. And then the United States gets involved in World War I, and uh, overnight, they've got to raise an, an army of three million. So they've got to bring blacks and immigrants into the army, and they've got to bring them in with some enthusiasm. So there's a 180-degree reversal, and the War Department adopts a policy which says uh, soldier after soldier is to be turned out fit and eager to fight for liberty under the stars and stripes, mindful of the traditions of his race and the land of his nativity, and conscious of the principles for which he is fighting. And it's that big reversal that produces these two, uh, two units recruited locally in the New York area. Uh, one is the, uh, the 369th Infantry, Black Infantry, originally the 15th New York National Guard Regiment. And the 77th Division is raised really from the, uh, basically from the tenements of New York and trained out in Yaphank, Long Island. And, and I chose to write about them because, first of all, they're from the same place. They're both raised in the city. These are the two groups whose citizenship is under threat before 1917. And through service in the army, they're hoping to win uh, an equal place in American society. So how did the experience of these two units differ in terms of being marginalized ethnically? The, the common experience, of course, was combat. And both of them had a, a heroic record uh, in combat. Uh, the uh, 369th served with the French army and was awarded the, the unit citation of the Croix de Guerre. There's the whole regiment got the Croix de Guerre, which is the highest uh, French medal. And the 77th Division, particularly the 308th Infantry, became the famous Lost Battalion. So they fought a kind of Alamo fight in the Argonne Forest for seven days, surrounded. Uh, three quarters of them became casualties. Uh, they never uh, surrendered. So they had this heavy combat experience. They were also, they're like a social microcosm of American society, particularly in New York City. Working class soldiers and the officers are, are <laughs> predominantly Ivy League graduates and uh, Wall Street lawyers and stockbrokers uh, to, to a large extent. Uh, so you get in the interactions within the regiment a kind of a byplay between the classes and one of the astonishing things about him is that in both cases, they developed mutual respect and affection going both ways in the regiments. They were well officered and uh, it, it worked out very well for them. The big differences are the American army was segregated. Pershing at first did not want black units serving alongside white units. So he shipped the 369th to the French army. Uh, they called themselves Les Enfants Perdus, the, uh, the, the orphans, uh, the lost children of the American army. And this proved to be a, a, a great benefit to them because the French welcomed them as Americans not, and made, made no distinction of color and uh, trained them to be assault troops. The bad part is that whenever they came in contact with the American army, uh, they were Jim Crowed. Uh, the, the officers uh, in, in rest camps, uh, white MPs, uh, that is sergeants, were told that they didn't have to uh, obey orders given by officers of black regiments. 
And uh, there was an uh, instruction issued to the French from the American army headquarters that uh, it was dangerous for the French to treat blacks in an equal way because it would give them ideas that would be dangerous when they came back home and had to go back under Jim Crow. So that's the big, that's the big difference. Whereas the 308th Infantry and the 77th Division, serving with the American Army, were generally treated like, uh, like regular troops. The only real difference is uh, that very few, uh, and I couldn't actually find any, of the ethnic soldiers, the, the Jews, the Italians, the Chinese, uh, who actually served in the regiment as well, uh, were promoted above the rank of sergeant major. Uh, none of them became officers. From your point of view, why should American students be taught about the exploits of these soldiers? I think there's a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it's just an act of historical justice to remember the service of, uh, of these uh, soldiers who fought for their country under very difficult circumstances, who, who accepted in good faith the idea that if they served patriotically, they would win equal treatment. And I think it's particularly relevant now that we're experiencing such a, a heavy racial backlash against uh, racial minorities and ethnic minorities, particularly new immigrants, to be reminded that the same prejudices were being laid out 100 years ago and that the answer to it was really to, to open the country, to accept these people. And, and you know, what, what you found was that their, their, their patriotism was capable of making the highest sacrifice. I should also add that although they served during the war with the promise of equality, when they got back, the promise was broken. Uh, Jim Crow got worse in the 1920s. The Ku Klux Klan got up to 5 million members nationally in the 1920s. So far as immigrants were concerned, Congress passed the Immigration uh, Restriction Act in 1924 which limited the number of East European Jews, Poles, uh, Italians, and of course, Asians who could come in uh, into the country, radically limited, so that uh, in the 1930s, Jews would be trapped in, uh, in Hitler's, uh, Hitler's Germany as a result. And uh, the soldiers resented the breaking of the promise and some of the activism for civil rights that began in the 1920s and 30s was led by, by veterans, Jewish and black veterans. Dr. Slotkin, thank you for your insights. You're very welcome. Dr. Richard Slotkin is a historian, professor emeritus, and author. Follow the links in the podcast notes to learn more about him and his books. And now for A Century in the Making, the story of America's World War I memorial in Washington, D.C., in this segment, we take you on an insider's journey that explores this grand undertaking and the people behind it. In the summer of 2017, the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts and the National Capital Planning Commission unanimously approved the conceptual design for the memorial centered around a monumental work of bronze sculpture. Sculptor Sabin Howard then embarked on an eight-month effort to bring the memorial to life. And as you heard from Sabin himself, in our podcast episodes number 54 and number 55, the sculpture has evolved from his original sketches and drawings into 3D images and 3D models. Sabin's efforts at the Weta Workshop in New Zealand culminated in late January with the creation of a sculptural maquette of the proposed design. Essentially, that's the sculpture at a one-sixth scale. 
Last week, you heard an audio documentary on this show as the striking model, which is around 10 and a half feet long by about one foot high, arrived in Washington, D.C. The maquette serves as the first draft of the Memorial Sculptural Design and Development and is scheduled to be presented to the Commission of Fine Arts on Thursday, February 15th for their review and feedback. Then on Friday, February 16th, the maquette will be unveiled to the public for the first time on the Fox and Friends television show. Now, pending on all regulatory agency approvals anticipated by the summer of 2018, the design and the development of the sculpture will enter its final production phase, including casting. We actually built two of the maquettes to accommodate both public and private displays over the coming months. Watch the unveiling on Fox and Friends next Friday, or come to our website that weekend at www.cc.org memorial for a first look yourself. Follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. As we talked about at the top of the show, rationing and ingredient substitution became necessary in World War I America. Special recipes were developed to keep food tasty, but also within the rules laid out by the Food Administration's guidelines. These new, wheatless, meatless, and sugarless recipes strove to keep familiar foods on the table of America, and they earned their own nickname, which is our speaking World War I phrase for this week. These wartime foods and recipes were deemed to have been hooverized in honor of the Food Administration's chief, Herbert Hoover. There was cake made with potato flour instead of wheat, candies made with molasses or honey instead of refined sugar, and bread using a mixture of potato, rye, and corn flour. Well, actually, hooverized food sounds to me like a very contemporary, trendy, gluten-free, health food, paleo-vegan-esque kind of a diet. But somehow I think hooverized recipes doesn't sound like a trendy, hip, slick hook, even if it is this week's phrase for speaking World War I. See the podcast notes to learn more. For our updates from the states, we're pleased to announce that Ohio has launched a new centennial website at www.cc.org slash Ohio, all lowercase. With us is Amy Rowe Miller, World War I coordinator at the Ohio History Connection, to tell us more about the site and the World War I centennial commemoration efforts in Ohio. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Teo. Good to be here. Amy, tell us about the Ohio World War I Centennial Organization. How is it structured and what kind of projects are you guys working on? Well, we have a two-pronged structure, I guess you would say. The Ohio World War I Centennial Commission is made up of uh, people from all around the state in Ohio who have an interest in World War One or who represent groups that are interested in, in commemorating World War I in some way. So we have World War I reenactors, directors of historical societies with strong connections to World War I, veterans groups, the American Legion, the Ohio Army National Guard historian is on our committee, the State Library uh, has somebody on the committee, so we, we try to represent a wide variety of voices on our statewide committee to, to plan our signature statewide commemorative events. 
And then the second role of our committee is to support events that are going on around the state. So we really try to amplify and support however we can events that are going on everywhere. So we know that lots of local organizations, libraries, historical societies, American Legion posts are having their own World War I events. And so we list them on our calendar, um, send support if we can, things like that. So we're a really grassroots movement. So Amy, what was the experience of Ohioans like during the war? It's really hard to pin down a typical Ohioan's experience of the war. Lots of Ohioans were soldiers and fought overseas in the war. Um, Ohio sent approximately 4% of the entire nation's manpower over to the trenches. Uh, We also had um, one of the biggest training camps in Ohio at Camp Sherman outside of Chillicothe. Over 120,000 troops were trained there. So there's definitely a large military experience of Ohioans. Ohio was also very involved in war production and producing materials and industries to support the war effort. Factories all over the place were involved in that. Armco in Middletown was producing steel for the war. Dayton was producing airplanes and airplane engines for the war effort. At the same time, though, Ohio was also a very German state at the time. There are lots of German immigrants who lived in Ohio, and so they were also experiencing the flip side of all of this uh, patriotism to support the war effort because there was also a lot of anti-German sentiment here in Ohio. Towns changed their names. There was a town in Northeast Ohio named New Berlin. And the main employer of the town, uh, the Hoover Company, kind of forced the town to change its name to North Canton to remove any association with anything even remotely associated with Germany. There are stories of dachshund being kind of rounded up in Cincinnati because those are German dogs and you can't have anything related to Germany that way. And German newspapers went out of business. Germans stopped being taught in schools. Um, So we also have that experience in Ohio, too. So it, it depends on who you were and where you lived, what your experience of the war was like. Amy, your website looks really great. What kind of information should people expect to find if they go to www.cc.org slash Ohio? We are trying to provide a lot of great information about Ohio on the website. So ideally, in the next couple of weeks, you will be able to go online and see articles that uh, delve deeper into those stories that I mentioned previously. Uh, We're trying to explore the war from all different aspects, from the military to the home front, um, to social history, to industrial history, to tell people stories that they may not know when they think about World War I. At the same time, we're also uh, trying to get the word out about all of the wonderful events to commemorate the war that are happening in our state. So we are constantly updating uh, our calendar of events with all the events that we know about. um, And we're trying to add all of the uh, memorials and museums uh, related to World War One too. So we hope that we're a one-stop shop for anything you may want to know about World War One in Ohio. Amy, if I'm a if I'm an Ohioan and I have something I want to contribute uh, to the story, is there a way of reaching you? Yeah, um, you can certainly 
contact me. You can email me. My um, email is on the World War One website, and I love seeing what people send in. Um, just last night, actually, we got an email from a gentleman who transcribed his grandfather's World War One diary. Um, so we're trying to figure out where we can put that to make that more accessible. So if you have a story or a resource that you'd like to share, please send it to us. Amy, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Amy Miller is the World War I coordinator at the Ohio History Connection. Visit the Ohio World War I Centennial website at www.cc.org Ohio or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz. The centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what did you pick this week? Hey there, Teo. Popular posts on our Facebook page this week are all about color. The National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City has started a new project, Color Our Collections. You can follow the link in the podcast notes to download a coloring book drawn from the museum's collections, including several of Captain Bruce Band's father's illustrations. Last for the week, another collection of color photographs from World War I is making the rounds online. But these are not black and white images that have since had color added. They're original color images from 100 years ago. The color process used to create them is called autochrome, and it used dyed pieces of potato starch to turn a normal black and white negative into the beautiful velvety color photos you can see at the Slate article in the podcast links. That's it this week for The Buzz. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of World War I Centennial News. We had a lot of guests this week, and we want to thank them. Dr. Libby O'Connell, author, historian, and World War I Centennial Commissioner. Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author. Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. Indy Nidell and Florian Wittig from the Great War Channel on YouTube. Ambassador Carol Mosley Braun, pioneering politician and diplomatic advisor to the Commission. Dr. Richard Slotkin, historian, author, and professor emeritus. Amy Rowmiller, the World War I coordinator at the Ohio History Connection. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and the line producer for the podcast. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at ww one Centennial News, on Amazon Echo and other Alexa-enabled devices, just say, Alexa, play ww one Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. <laughs> Those fellas out there don't seem to be very cheerful. Say, let's stand up and sing them a song with some pep in it. 
Well, I wouldn't stand up too high if I were you, or you'll be singing with a harp in your fist instead of a gun. <laughs> oh, we're used to that. This trench is full of harp. <laughs> Come on, songbird, go to it. We are the Yankee boys, we're full of Yankee joys, and we love with hearts so true, the old red, white, and blue. As we will prove to you, you bet your bottom dollar, here we play until we end the fray. We like the hustle and the noise. We'd rather fight than eat. We know we can't be beat the Yankee Yankee boys. Huh, jeez, I, I need to decide. Is it going to be the, the low FODMAP gluten-free diet? Or, or maybe the gut health diet? Oh, oh wait, the, the matcha turmeric maca diet. That sounds good. Or the Mediterranean makeover. Or maybe I ought to go for vegan 2.0. Oh, forget about it. I'm just going to hooverize my recipes. So long. <laughs>